0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the new Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Books. Let's start the show. Tess Gunty is a poet and fiction writer, and her first novel, The Rabbit Hutch, is the inaugural winner of the Waterstones Debut Fiction Prize, and it is currently a finalist for the National Book Award. The Rabbit Hutch is a novel of such ambition and skill that to call it a debut seems an unnecessary burden to other first-time novelists. Exploding with imagery that bubbles and roils from the page, it is perhaps best described as a gut punch or maybe a rabbit punch to the senses. Men glow with bioluminescent-like colors, martyrs and mystics see visions, fibrous threads sprout from skin pores, and that's not even mentioning all the rabbits, dead, alive, sacrificed. From its very first sentence, Tess Gunty has killed off her protagonist, Blandine, formerly known as Tiffany, and we stand above the death scene, voyeurs to an acid trip involving a man who has painted himself in glow stick chemicals. Before we even have time to catch our breath, the narrative eye has zoomed out of the apartment and is peering into other apartments, finding loneliness and desperation, but also the distilled essence of human life on display, the very best and worst of each of us, one apartment at a time. Set in Vaca Vale, a post-industrial wasteland of a city in Indiana, The Rabbit Hutch is a mystery story with a death at its core, but with many searchers seeking clues about their own humanity, their ability to be free of the heaviness with which the world has saddled them. We meet many foster children struggling to understand what being an adult cut free from the moorings of family and connection might mean. We see privilege overflowing, situated directly next to untended blight. There is fear and exhilaration blended with the quotidian striving to live from day to day. As Blandine seeks her own escape from a world that has no room for her, others lurch toward her, dying to find intimacy and understanding in her company. The Rabbit Hutch is a desperate cry that refuses to allow the reader to pity its characters. Instead, it makes demands upon our attention— It asks us to consider our own responsibility for those whose lives we intersect with and for those whom we never see, those closed away in the rabbit hutch. Welcome Tess Gunty to the show.
1: Thank you for that generous introduction.
0: It's lovely to have you here. Um, The problem with crafting this interview was I had Too many questions. This (laughs) is a book that is maximalist in every sense of that word, and it is just stuffed with so many interesting things. But I want to start at the beginning. We Mm -hmm. enter the narrative just as Blandine has exited her body. Would you be willing to read the opening two pages for us to set the scene?
1: Absolutely. So this is called The Opposite of Nothing. On a hot night in apartment C4, Blondine Watkins exits her body. She is only 18 years old, but she has spent most of her life wishing for this to happen. The agony is sweet, as the mystics promised. It's like your soul is being stabbed with light, the mystics said, and they were right about that too. The mystics call this experience the transverberation of the heart, or the seraph's assault, but no angel appears to Blondine. There is, however, a bioluminescent man in his 50s, Glowing like a firefly. He runs to her and yells. Knife, cotton, hoof, bleach, pain, fur, bliss. As Blondine exits herself, she is all of it. She is every tenant of her apartment building. She is trash and cherub, a rubber shoe on the seafloor, her father's orange jumpsuit, a brush raking through her mother's hair the first and last Zorn Automobile Factory in Vacaville, Indiana. A nucleus inside the man who robbed her body when she was 14, a pair of red glasses on the face of her favorite librarian, a radish tugged from a bed of dirt. She is no one. She is Katie, the Portuguese water dog, who licked her face whenever the foster family banished them both in the snow because they were in the way. An algorithm for amplified content and a blue slushy from the gas station. The first pair of tap shoes on the feet of a child actress and the man telling her to try harder. She is the smartphone that films her as she bleeds on the floorboards of her apartment. And she is the chipped nail polish on the teenager who assembled the 90th step of that phone on a green factory floor in Shenzhen, China. An American satellite, a bad word. The ring on the finger of her high school theater director. She is every cottontail rabbit grazing on the vegetation of her supposedly dying city. 10 minutes of pleasure igniting between the people who made her. The final tablet of oxycodone on her mother's tongue. The gavel that will sentence the boys to prison for what they're doing to Blondine right now. There is no such thing as right now. She is not another young woman wounded on the floor, body slashed by men for its resources. No, she is paying attention. She is the last laugh. On that hot night in apartment C4, when Blondine Watkins exits her body, she is not everything. Not exactly. She's just the opposite of nothing.
0: Thank you so much. That was beautiful. So why begin with the protagonist shuffling off the mortal coil, as it were?
1: Hmm. Well, I tried several openings before I arrived at this one. And it was only after I finished the the first draft of the whole novel that I could write it. I was interested, I guess, in structuring the novel around this event. It's the kind of unifying event of the subsequent 330 pages or so. And it's the signpost that we keep returning to because I this is a, a sort of more varied and perhaps complex structure than other novels and there was i think a necessity to keep familiar signposts along the way so i think of this as a novel about entrapment and freedom and particularly what what is a self that's a question that i think is asked Mm. Mm-hmm. And also what is um what does that self owe others, not just those around you, but past, future generations and non-human inhabitants, et cetera? And so starting with this kind of moment of obliterating the self and then ending with it and kind of re- returning to it throughout the book, allowed me to I suppose keep my eye can kind of keep keep looking that that question in the eye.
0: We encounter Blandine. And the man that we will learn is Moses Robert in Blundine's apartment building, a place known to its inhabitants as the rabbit hutch. Your narrative eye will pop in and out of the various apartments, and in doing so, enter different consciousnesses. Why was the architectural space of a decrepit apartment building an interesting place to set your omniscient narrator free?
1: Mm, well, I have always been struck. I mean, even growing up in my neighborhood, which was, I suppose, a fairly conventional American residential neighborhood near the University of Notre Dame, wasn't suburbia, but it was, um, yeah, it was residential. And the houses were. My house was quite close to the house next to mine. It was about six feet away, and I was friends with my neighbor, and we were, you know, around the same age, and we were friends since childhood. And as we grew up, our lives. I mean we drifted apart and as as children do, but in part because our lives were so radically different. And I think the factors that were pl- that were sort of operating upon us were were so different, and it wasn't neither of us had chosen them. And I think this the proximity to her and her life throughout my life, um paired with the kind of vast, mysterious nature of the chasm between our lives was always very striking to me. And I mean, there were many many neighbors in our, in our neighborhood, again, that we lived so close to that I knew nothing about. And they seemed to have, yeah, just, I mean, everyone was dealt this radically different hand at birth. And that, that was very obvious in my neighborhood. Um, and then I was living in Brooklyn when I started writing this book. And I was, again, in, in an apartment building where the walls were very thin. It was a pretty old building. And there were uh, lots of changes happening in the neighborhood where I lived. There was, you know, gentrification, which um, was displacing people who had been there for decades and sometimes generations. And so I would hear kind of people's lives playing out around me, at kind of like radio plays, and yet I'd have nothing, I'd have no real contact with most of them. And I suppose this kind of, yeah, the proximity. Um, always emphasized the essential mystery between my life and theirs the kind of essential chasms and maybe this book was a way it was a kind of wish fulfillment a a way to to reach across the chasm and vividly imagine kind of um yeah the lives playing out around me
0: yeah that contradiction between Proximity and failure of understanding, even though in the case of your house in, in South Bend you could you could reach out and touch the other house and yet mm-hmm. there was an inability to understand how the circumstances could be so different for the two mm-hmm. of you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: Blending is the name of a teenage martyr who endured public torture by the Romans. It's the name that Tiffany takes on after an affair with one of her teachers. Why do you have her turn to mystics and martyrs as a means of transformation?
1: Well, in some senses, it's just an accident of her birth and time. I mean, I think these are the kind of figures she encountered because she's in this very Catholic context, and she herself was not raised Catholic, which perhaps primes her to receive these figures with more neutrality than she would if she were raised within the religion. But... Also, I was really interested in the idea of the the sort of a, a troubled relationship with the body that was imposed upon Blondine, and she saw reflected in these women, in these women mystics throughout time. I don't think that I would ever look to most of these mystics as a, as like examples of healthy or virtuous relationships <laughs> with the body. They had incredibly <laughs> troubled relationships. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> no. no. And they had, you know, a lot of them had, um, I suppose, what might be considered eating disorders now and Mm -hmm, had, mm -hmm. um, you know, were were really interested in sort of corporeal punishment and denial as a a conduit to divine connection. And um, all of that I find, you know, deeply troubling, but also very interesting because I think it kind of reflects... In this case it did reflect or at least it resonated with something that blondine was also experiencing which was to kind of to exist within a young female body and particularly her female body was to be kind of horribly visible and and fully unseen and to kind of i mean i think she feels kind of trapped in this lightning rod for um unwanted male attention especially and so Um, She's also looking for models, I think, of escape that don't depend upon resources, material resources, Mm -hmm. in, in this case, the you know the female mystics and i'm referring to them as the mystics you can kind of call them whatever you want but it's this yeah this group of women in the catholic church uh throughout time that uh, identify as such and i i think blondine sees no way to transcend her circumstances through material means she doesn't have money or even a high school degree she is she has no family or connections and so What the mystics, the model of kind of freedom and transcendence that the mystics offer her is one that requires nothing but time and isolation. And of course, those are maybe resources as well. But Blondine can imagine having those and she can't imagine having anything else. Um, So, yeah, I think that was what I was thinking about.
0: Yeah, You write beautifully that, quote, Tiffany Jean Watkins chose Blondine as her namesake in an effort to transcend the troublesome corporeality into which she was born and achieve untouchability. In, as you were just saying, there's there's so much of that unwanted male attention that is both physical and also intangible that she has to deal with even beyond all the other things that weigh heavily on her economically and, and otherwise. So the idea of a spiritual transcending um, becomes becomes of interest to her. It seemed almost like a blending of a uh, of a Buddhist nirvana of leaving one's body and this kind of denying of the body that the mystics were so fond of. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that really interests me in kind of brain scans of of people who are in the midst of some kind of um, ecstatic divine experience, you know, that's kind of shorthand and I'm sure everyone would describe it differently because there have been people studied from very different. I mean, who kind of reach this this kind of state, I suppose, a mystical a state of a mystical experience. Um, and it whether it's induced through drugs or through meditation or through prayer whether the person is coming from a religious perspective or a secular perspective. One thing that's common throughout, I guess, across subjects is that the part of the brain that processes the self kind of goes quiet. And a lot of these people, I mean, one thing that's common among the descriptions of these experiences is that there is a sense of unity with everything around you, not just the people or the animals, but objects as well and and different time periods even. And that's really fascinating to me. I think in a way it's this kind of um, perhaps useless, but maybe um, most salient solution, or at least the antithesis of so many, I think of the social crises that we face now, the kind of central problems that are that are haunting my characters, um, whether it's uh, climate change or white supremacy or um, just the the sort of brutality of the extraction economy. Of course none of those things are i mean those are all related to each other but so i I guess i was interested in that model of kind of ultimate uh unity and a kind of quiet um i guess um a a way out of the self that yeah that seemed to be in direct contradiction with all the forces at play today
0: Hmm. the rabbit hutch is suffused with foster children Anyone awake over the past decade will have seen the abject failures of the child welfare system in the U.S. Tell me about why you wanted to dramatize the lives and loves and challenges faced by the foster children in your novel.
1: Well, I think it was important to me that all of the characters in this book be orphaned in some way by the time we meet them. So not mm-hmm. just the, mm-hmm. the young adults who've just aged out of foster care, but um, every single character in one way or another has been forsaken by by their parents or caregivers. And either their caregivers had died or or they're estranged or what have you. And I suppose I was interested in that um, dynamic because it reflected what was going on economically in, in these post-industrial towns in the Midwest that I was kind of, I mean, I was raised in one and then I saw many others in my region. And I think when there's a kind of um, when there's this absence of protection, a sudden absence of protection, and you're kind of at the mercy of structural compassion, I think structural weaknesses are particularly visible. And these are characters who are vulnerable in every way in the kind of the most extreme ways. And because of that, I think the kind of ailments of, um, I suppose the the um, the social failures, structural and then even interpersonal social failures are, yeah, are our- are extremely visible. And so thinking about, you know, every single character in the book, not just those who aged out of foster out of the foster system as, yeah, as as um cut off from their sense of protection and security and even identity.
0: Yeah, that really it it, it cuts across even the economic lines uh, between the characters so that mm-hmm. you have even even your privileged characters have been abandoned and orphaned in all kinds of terrible ways by their parents and it's and it's something that is a trauma that is that no one can seem to really unload
1: Mm -hmm. yes that's definitely true i mean i think this is especially apparent in moses who even when his mother is alive feels um completely abandoned by her
0: yeah even in her her presence often (laughs) with sort of various uh people of the the Hollywood set or the acting set, uh, he feels invisible or absent or unwanted. It's it's very mm-hmm. pitiable. Mm, yeah. I want to talk craft for a second. There's so many distinct voices in the novel. How did you keep them straight in your mind? And how did you ensure that each would read as authentic to the traits of the characters you give voice to?
1: I think I tend to write associatively in the in the early drafts. And so I don't I guess I don't I don't um, worry too much about the balance or the composition until I can see the whole thing. And so in this case, I think I had about a third of it, two thirds of it drafted, and I was asked by a professor to make a map of the novel, and I almost never outline or anything like that. but. This assignment sort of gave me the um, the opportunity to I, I made note cards, essentially, of like the main events of the novel and put them around my room. And then I just kind of lived within this structure for for a few years, actually, until I left that apartment and kept moving them around and adding things that exercise was extremely helpful for this particular structure because it is polyphonic and multi-textural. And it was you know, important to me that everything be intentional as much as it is associative. And so I think, in, and then in terms of kind of making the voices distinct, I, I mean, most of the kind of first person voices in this novel. So there's, there's one section that's narrated from Jack's perspective, and he's one of the roommates of Blondine is also aged out of foster system. His voice was so distinct from my own that as soon as I started writing it, it wasn't even I guess it wasn't much of an effort actually to make his voice his own because it was so different. It was almost like overhearing a voice rather than inventing one. Hmm. And then uh, there's a you know another first person section from the perspective of a, a middle-aged man who's kind of going through a psychological crisis. And again, it was so distinct that it was it wasn't even a conscious effort. But I think the ones that are the most difficult for me are actually the characters that are the most similar to me, or the ones that are at least superficially similar. Um, And, you know, writing is like dreaming, where you really are every single character in your book, and you can kind of access parts of yourself that you don't otherwise access, especially under the guise of someone who's very different superficially. But I do find that, I don't know, especially writing in first person, from a perspective that's kind of extremely aligned with my own is the hardest thing to do. And I, I don't even think I did it in this book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One of the things that for me makes the rabbit hutch exceptional is that you're able to con combine authentic driving dialogue with these gorgeous, weird, lurid descriptions of everyone and every. For example, uh, The Wooden Lady um, Motel is described both as a place that quote, inspires hard crime as soon as you enter it, and by an online reviewer as if manslaughter were a place. (laughs) What are the different demands as a writer of good dialogue and literary description?
1: I, when I think about the the people who who do dialogue, I mean, I guess when I'm thinking about the dialogue that I'm most drawn to in other people's work, there's such an, an incredible range in terms of realism. Like, I love Zadie Smith's dialogue. I think that she is one of the most uh, incredible uh, dialogue writers. And her dialogue is quite real. I mean, it feels very overheard and natural. And then I also love, you know, Samuel Beckett's dialogue in his plays. <laughs> That's incredibly unreal and... Um, I mean, in, in some ways, and I, I think, um, same with Joy Williams, the kind of, the conversations that are staged between her characters are, they, they, there's this kind of otherworldly quality to them. Um, and so maybe, I don't know if there's a kind of formula or a description that I could give why, why all of these things are exciting, but maybe one, one, one thing I've learned recently from reading, I was reading, um an Annie Baker play called John, and I've never seen any of her plays performed, but the dialogue, it taught me a lot about how to reveal things by concealing them. And I think I'm really drawn to dialogue that's sort of always at the edge of the thing, uh, the actual thing that I'm interested in the kind of peripheral dialogue that's not quite looking the thing in the eye, but is trying to. Or trying not to—that's um, mm-hmm. the most interesting dialogue to me. Like the stuff that's kind of maybe in um, I, I kind of digressive and I, I some you know some revelatory in some way because it's not trying to be revelatory.
0: That sounds. I mean, it's interesting that you you bring up a playwright because what you're describing sounds very much like the dialogue of theater.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean I think I I learned so much from from plays that, that I mean this is their one this is their one tool really. I mean, obviously not the only tool, but dialogue is the primary tool and so you um yeah I mean I've been trying to read more plays and I think every time I do I learn something yeah about about how to how to kind of I guess stage encounters between people that feel revelatory and surprising without feeling um forced
0: Moses Robert Blitz is might be my favorite character he's certainly unforgettable he's a rocket ship of dysfunction flying toward violence in the novel He has seemingly unlimited funds, but chooses to live his life taking bizarre revenge against perceived enemies by covering himself in glow stick liquid and sneaking into their bedrooms at night. Was there a catalyst for this eccentric character?
1: (laughs) Well, I love your description of him. Um, And the truth is that he arrived to me that way. I mean, he arrived to me with that quality and kind of nothing else, I thought middle-aged man who punishes his enemies by covering himself in glow stick liquid. <laughs> and I, I, mean, I was reading Infinite Jest at the time and I, I don't know if there was like something about that book that kind of gave rise to this man. But um, I, I mean, I think on a sort of boring note, it was when I was a teenager, I was, at a friend's house and somebody accidentally broke open those glow sticks and, um, started splattering everyone with them in the dark. And so we all started putting this, these chemicals on our skin and, you know, it was probably shaving years off our lives, but um, (laughs) at
0: least minutes, maybe not years. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. But I mean, there's actually something that his mother writes in her obituary in, in the early chapter of the, in an early chapter of the book which is um being looked at is not the same as being seen and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think every character in this book is some is in some way reckoning and wrestling with that dilemma with um the desire to be seen the desire to never be seen i i think moses is someone who is has never felt seen and this sort of bizarre charade is a way to be seen in a very controlled environment, in a very uh, hostile environment where he's, you know, a kind of benign threat. And I I suppose, I mean, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but I think they would have a lot to say about, about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> But I think, yeah, I mean, it I guess- You would be the
0: that... subject of many dissertations.
1: I Freud would, yeah, would uh, have to devote a whole book, I think, to this (laughs) man. But I, yeah, I mean, I I think that is the core of it, is the kind of being looked at, being seen, under what terms and conditions do you want that? Do you not want it?
0: Naming him after Robert Moses, destroyer of city life, was, I thought, a stroke of genius. He, He acts like the personification of urban decay. What's Robert Moses, the historical figure, doing in this novel?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think in some ways it's it has more to do with the kind of revelation. I mean, I love thinking about him as this force of urban decay. But when I originally wrote it, I think I was I was thinking more about it as revealing Elsie Blitz, his mother's kind of value system. The idea mm, yeah. that she meets <laughs> this man at a party and is enchanted with him and names her child after him um, in this reversed naming order. But you know, he was this. He was a force of I think American blight in terms of yeah, urban destruction, um, the prioritization of cars over people, and um, obviously really troubling segregation, uh, like reinforcement and creation. And so I think all of this sort of, even though he didn't have anything to do with, you know, in, in this town in Indiana, I when I look at the kind of um, the urban disaster of car dependent disposable places that were sort of designed to be, to serve one industry, and and then um, you know designed in this horribly utilitarian way, sort of divested of beauty. And I think that that is that the sort of urban design is inextricable from the social decay and the kind of spiritual uh, hunger and pain of of people who grow up in a place without beauty, who that was designed, uh, you know, with without their needs in mind.
0: I it's on the on the same track of, you know, being deprived of beauty and and having urban blight sort of take over the natural world in favor of cars. I, it's very much true that the shadow conflict and drama of your novel is climate change. And that's seen in in small ways and and large ways, including biblical floods that are sort of tossed off as in in that typical sort of conservative rhetoric as, oh, this is just the ebb and flow of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wondered why you wanted to have it really be a sort of like background shadowing element of the drama of the novel rather than some kind of central vortex
1: well i think i would be really interested in tackling it in a more um explicit way in future work it's something that i find incredibly urgent and also very difficult to stage in art for some reason there you know this Mm -hmm. is a crisis that is of historic magnitude and yet it's developed it's inspired, striking little art about it, and perhaps that's because it's it's vast, and I don't know. I mean, our brains are really not designed to comprehend it. Yeah, it's,
0: it's a scale thing, I think.
1: It's, right, it's it is, and and then when you have these acute manifestations of it, like these floods, which were modeled on floods that happened in my in South Bend, Indiana, there was a 500-year flood and like a you know 1,000-year flood that happened in the same year the town is situated on a river. Even when that happens, it didn't happen in South Bend, but this happens all the time. You know, politicians are quick to dismiss it as, as you said, just ebbs and flow of of nature, of kind of natural rhythms, et cetera. And people for so many decades were reluctant to identify even those acute manifestations as symptoms of the climate crisis. I I mean, I, I was actually kind of surprised to see The climate crisis manifesting in this book because i didn't think about it as a book about that um but of course it is about the extraction economy and or at least the yeah the brutality and consequences of of this um of unregulated or poorly regulated capitalism and i think that the climate crisis is probably the most dramatic consequence of this you know dramatic and long-lasting consequence of this failure Um, a failure of an economic system and also of an ideology. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about, especially when I'm situated in the mind of Blondine, who's only 18 in this book, this is a person who's sort of looking at the wasteland of not just her town, but her future and her country and seeing, I mean, it's the first, maybe not the first time because of course the cold war and there've been other kind of global catastrophes before, but it is, um, it, it completely mutates one's perception of one's future now i mean when you when you really acknowledge the climate crisis and the the likelihood of its um an un- un- unstoppability
0: Yes, it it sure does. <laughs> um, you invoke a, the difficult and problematic ethical thinker, Peter Singer, and his theory of the expanding circle of care for those around us. The idea is that we would sacrifice a great deal to care for someone in need standing right next to us, and then asking why do we fail to sacrifice for those in need who are further away, but understood to be equally in need? This is a beautiful structure for understanding how the lines of connection in your novel are often to do with who has responsibility to care for whom. I finish the novel feeling like there are Blandines who need to be saved, but no one is willing to sacrifice. Can you discuss how this undergirds the ethics of your novel?
1: Yes, um, it is something that kind of haunts me every day, which is, what, as I said before, what do we owe each other? This kind of, I think that because communities have kind of shifted so radically over the past few centuries, at least in the Western world, certainly in America, to uh, an incredibly individual sort of isolated unit. Um, Even the nuclear family isn't really like there's not a lot of extended connection, you know, after college. And so the more isolated people become, um, the more vulnerable mm. they become. And I think everyone in this novel is sort of, is sort of reckoning with the impossibility of of caring for everyone who needs to be cared for, and then using that impossibility as an excuse to, to avoid taking care of those in their immediate communities. Mm. And I find that, to be, I mean, I think that, that, that kind of plays out on, on lots of different, in lots of different landscapes in reality. Like even um, when you think about climate change and you think about individual action versus, individual action versus structural change, you know, those things are so often pitted against each other. And I actually think that they're locked in this kind of mutual feedback loop, a kind of positive feedback loop, obviously, you know, the sum of of lots of individual choices would incite change, and yet there's a lot of hostility toward that argument um, from people who say, but that that's just what corporations want us to believe, and that excuses them from their responsibility to act. And I find that argument to be um, very reasonable, like I, I completely understand it and yet i also look at the world and i don't see politicians or corporations choosing to change out of the you know the goodness of their hearts i see them changing <laughs> occasionally when they when they think that the consumer appetite has changed when the mm-hmm. voter appetite mm-hmm. has changed and so i mean that's just one example of many of this kind of how do we act in a way that's ethical um what does hope have to do with it? Like, especially when it comes to the climate crisis, you know, I I helped my former professor, Jonathan zaffern write a book, a nonfiction book about food systems and the climate crisis. And so I was researching that for a few years. And um, one thing that often comes up is hope when you're writing about the climate crisis, you know, or when you're an activist, when you're involved in any kind of organizing. And to me, hope, seems completely irrelevant like we don't really have the luxury of of um, of only acting if there's hope. I think every degree of change, every degree of warming makes an enormous difference every half degree of warming makes an enormous difference and there's you know yeah the the like the question of whether or not it's likely that we can stop this in time is sort of beside the point we don't we don't have a choice we have to try.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's so well said. Uh, I before I let you go, I'm I'd be really interested to know if you are loving reading something right now, and what is it that calls you from your bedside table that you can't wait to finish.
1: I just started reading Trust by Hernan Diaz, and I'm really enjoying that. Um, mm-hmm. I was reading a a nonfiction, I just started a nonfiction book called Something Deeply Hidden by the theoretical physicist Sean Carroll. And that is, is a realm that I was kind of nervous to enter because I, I know so little about quantum physics. And, but it's really lit, written for a kind of lay audience. And it's it's a fascinating survey, I guess, of the most kind of uh, mysterious questions within quantum mechanics. And and then I- You say I,
0: that so nonchalantly, like <laughs> that you are nervous to just wander into the world of theoretical physics well (laughs) why ever were you (laughs)
1: yeah i mean yeah but i would recommend it for anyone who feels new to that world it's quite welcoming and then um i am i have a couple plays i'm reading like the three chekhov plays that are sort of bound together and i just i'm I, i don't even remember the name of the first one but i'm kind of listening to it and reading it. And um, yeah, I I think those are the three things right now that are most exciting to me.
0: Those are great. I think, um, you know, trust actually has some remarkable echoes with the rabbit hutch and I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful novel, and he's he's such a deeply important author. I, I don't know if I'm going to be wandering into theoretical physics, but if I do feel called, I now know that I have I have the welcome that I that I'll need in something yeah. deeply hidden. Um, but Tess, thank you so much. I I just adore the Rabbit Hutch, and and I feel like it's been so rightly uh, picked up by these various prizing committees and in its reviews as as an, a truly exceptional novel. And I'm so glad that it's getting that attention.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. And can I just say that I actually love this podcast. I've been listening to it for a long time now. And I I mean it's really a great honor to be on it. And I I'm just so grateful for your thoughtful interviews.
0: Ah uh, I that I, I'm incredibly touched. Thank you so much, Tess.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Tess Gunty for a wonderfully rich interview. Her debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, is available for purchase through a link to Buffalo Street Books on the website at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find Tess's recommendations and all of our previous episodes. Next week, look out for interviews with historian Matt Delmont and novelist Lydia Millett. Until then, this has been Burned by Books.